Hey everybody, we're back after a long break from the podcast. We have a wonderful guest on our show today. This is Dr. Tyler Black. Dr. Tyler Black, MD, FRCPC, is a child and adolescent psychiatrist and suicidologist who has been in clinical practice for over 13 years. For 11 years, he was the medical director of emergency psychiatry at BC Children's Hospital. On top of clinical duties, he is an assistant clinical professor at the University of British Columbia and a researcher specializing in suicidology, psychopharmacology, and video games. He's the co-creator of the Hearts Map, www.openheartsmap.ca, a psychosocial assessment and guidance tool for youth in the emergency department, and the creator of the ASARI, Assessment of Suicide and Risk Inventory, a documentation tool for clinicians who are assessing and noticing suicide risk. Dr. Talbach is somebody who I follow on Twitter for a while. He has so much more valuable information on this topic of suicide. We delved into, we talked about it. Really important, really and great enlightening, enlightening conversation. We talked about the stars and video games and movies and all that other stuff. So check it out. It's great. It's a good one. All right, so welcome. We have Dr. Tyler Black here with us. He is a psychiatrist out in Vancouver, correct? Yes. Yes, all right. So he's gonna be talking, we're gonna be talking about a bunch of stuff. Um, we'll get, allow him, I'll, I'll, we'll have probably read your introduction and your formal introduction and all that stuff before as an intro. But why don't you give us a little bit of an intro, a little bit of your background, all that blah, 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 sure all that stuff. Uh, well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm. Uh, you know, my career path, what I originally wanted to be an ophthalmologist, um, but I um, decided very early that surgery was not the life for me. Um, and I had a, I loved pediatrics. Um, I loved psychiatry. It was my first rotation. And so I went into um, uh, to psychiatry thinking that I wanted to work with kids. And that just really worked out well for me. As soon as I started to do the work in the children's hospital, I kind of knew that I, I found my stride. Prior to, to residency, I did an undergrad in pharmacology, so I've always been quite interested in pharmacology generally, and um, and then obviously in psychiatry, neuropharmacology is such an interesting field, and it's it's really something that is both nuanced and simple at the same time, which I really like. Um, and so, uh, so I, I, I really started um, trying to figure out what my niche was going to be. Um, you know, I wanted to do child psychiatry. I knew I wanted to do academic psychiatry. I was lucky to be working in a tertiary center. Um, and it wasn't until I, you know, I encountered a, a patient suicide um, of someone I didn't know. I was just coming on shift as a resident and I had seen a suicide that, um, you know, I watched everyone react to, even though I wasn't personally connected to it. And I realized there was a ton of misinformation and off teaching and I was trying to process all this as a learner and I, I started to hit the books and I realized that there was a lot about suicide that was being taught incorrectly. Um, so then I started to really pursue um, suicidology and emergency psychiatry. And that's when I knew I kind of found my, my niche. I, I, I think it's, a, it's an amazing field. It's a very applicable field. Like if you do psychiatry, suicide risk is you, one of your main concerns. And, um, and then, you know, working in emergency psychiatry, I've really been able to sol solidly um, develop expertise and by this point probably assessed more than 10,000 kids for suicide risk assessment. 
I've done suicide risk assessment teaching and training, developed a couple of tools. Um, and then, of course, during the last three years, I've become a, 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 a bizarrely political uh, contendent in this whole suicides thing, which I never thought would be a, a political issue. It is really bizarre um, that, you know, the last few years have just created all these strongly, strongly political people. Everyone, I think, has turned to Twitters and TikToks and their social media. I always remember that like Time Magazine cover that came out, you know, person of the year was like the mirror. Yeah. And it was it was it was you, right? It was us because yeah. that's what it was. It was the rise of like YouTube and all the social media where we became the authorities and everything. And then that authorities, you know, doesn't mean so much when ev when everybody's an authority on something, right? Well, we're, we're kind of used to this in psychiatry. Everybody has an opinion, you know, when you're an orth orthopedic surgeon. Not everybody has opinion on how to set a bone, but when you're a psychiatrist, everybody has an opinion on what to do with depression, anxiety, suicide, addiction, those types of things. Yeah, I, I always say to my patients, you know, when they ask me, like, do you think I have ADHD? Do you think I have depression? And I was like, well, if you went to five different psychiatrists, you'll get five different answers. <laughs> As part of the inherent flaws, I guess, with yeah. the field, and but at the same time, what kind of brought 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 us into it. I think similarly, I, you know, working with kids, you know, that's why I, most of my work is with child and adolescents. Yeah. You know, that was the light bulb moment for me also like in med school when I had my first kiddo patient and I was like, oh my God, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. And yeah, it's intense, but it, it retains that optimism of youth. You know, you're, you're doing serious stuff, but kids just have this um, incredible ability to push through and 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 you typically expect good outcomes with kids which is just a, a lovely place to be in psychiatry you know before we'd started i had opened up you know in a, in a different attempt to approaching the podcast i put us out there on twitter a little bit and mm -hmm. i was like oh we're going to do this so we're going to open up the field for questions if people want to ask stuff so i was like before we jump into the dark dark subject of like teen suicide and I was like, we had one question from uh, Dr. Ben Genoway from across the way. His question, very serious, was in Mario Kart, who yes. is your person that you choose? <laughs> I have a confession to make. I am. I have avoided most Nintendo games until the Switch. I have zero Mario Kart experience. I'm an avid video gamer, and I have almost no Mario Kart experience. The, uh, one time... I got my butt kicked. I think I was Princess Peach. And the other time, I think I was Bowser. Ah, yes. And it didn't matter. I suck. I am really <laughs> bad at Mario Kart. Really bad at Mario Kart. I was going to say, there's always uh, a Rorschach test. This yes. is the Rorschach test in video games is who is your Mario Kart person? I'm, yeah. I'm personally am a Yoshi, Yoshi person. Nice. Nice, so, yeah. But I guess we could say yeah, When I was younger, I played those yeah. games. But I never got into the Super Nintendo and, and later... Um, later franchises so it wasn't till the switch which is just an amazing system that i i kind of came back to nintendo i think mario kart came real big with nintendo 60 super nintendo first yeah. of all then nintendo 64 just yeah. really really took off yeah. with that one yeah. that was a, a perfect game in my opinion so yeah. all right so on that topic or on that mode we'll switch over to teen suicide and and the whole concept of suicidology and what what is a suicidologist what what does that mean? Yeah, it's funny. One of the commonest um, sort of trolley attacks I get is made up profession. Like, what is suicidology? And you know, it, it's it's really basic. You know, um, in 
in, um, in medicine, we study things that harm and kill people. Um, oncology is the study of cancer, you know, um, and suicide is a major cause of death. In fact, it's one of the leading cause of deaths in, in the first 40 years of life. Um, usually number one, two or three, depending on, on the nation and its statistics. Um, so, so really a suicidologist is someone who studies suicide and there's lots of ways to do it. Some people are a lot more sort of on the clinical end on the phenomenology, which obviously I do in my daily practice, but I am, um, I'm a really hardcore data geek. Like I just love looking at numbers and running staff. And if you if you follow me on Twitter, you'll just see endless amounts of generated Excel, uh, photos and, and, uh, and charts. And so epidemiology and, um, uh, and, and large, uh, trends is really probably my main area of expertise in that. But really anyone who studies suicide professionally as a suicidologist, there is an academy for it. I don't, I, I you know, it, there's no degree in suicidology. Um, you're a suicidologist when you care a lot about suicide and you start studying it. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, in psychiatry, you know, when we talk, when I talk with med students and stuff and mm -hmm. saying, you know, there's always an emergency in medicine, right? Every field has its emergency, right? Cardiology has the heart attack and neurology, the stroke and psychiatry, it's, it's suicide. And this is the thing, this is what we're trying to prevent. And it's, it's interesting when we think about it in all the other fields of medicine, nobody comes to the hospital with the desire or want to die, right? Everyone is, they're like, I want to live, right? And we have this very interesting kind of reaction, or this kind of opposite interaction in psychiatry where it's like people come to the hospital because they want to die. They want to kill themselves. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that, I guess, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's when people come to you, um, you don't know what their intention is. And I think um, the thing that always humbles me is the knowledge that there is no human on this earth that can accurately predict what someone is going to or is not going to do. Um, you know, there's all these um, pop psychology things about tells and ways to tell if people are t lying and stuff like that, but they're not true. They don't work. Um, and so at the end of the day, um, I never get to know my patient's intent. I never get to know what they were trying to do or what they are trying to do. All I can do is is a mixture of being my genuine self and wanting them to live a really good life. I have to have a humble position knowing that ultimately they're in the driver's seat. And though I do have some <laughs> controversial authorities um, over patients, um, I have to treat that very humbly because I am, even if I exert, say, um, an involuntary hold or something that on a patient, that patient can still seriously hurt themselves or die in hospital. And, and I don't get to control whether or not people li live or die. And then the third is trying my hardest not to worry about what the future will hold, but to try and look for the risk factors and protective factors that will alter what the future holds. And so when you do those three things together, um, ultimately, you recognize that a lot of people come to you with a mixed bag. They did something or they thought something, but they're there talking to you. So they're almost always a selected population of people who, who want a little bit of help or at least open to help. For those who are brought in against their will, um, it's a very unfruitful 
you know, sort of interview, you don't really get a lot to recognize that the person's saying what you want to hear, or maybe they're not saying anything at all. So when people are talking to you, you're genuinely work, working in a lucky position. I always think a lot about the patients who I don't get to see. We know that about 70 to 80% of people die on their first attempt. So of all the kids I see who have attempted suicide, um, I know that there's a whole whack of them that I've never gotten a chance to see. So I always consider it to be an honor and a privilege, and I recognize that I'm in a good place if the person's talking to me. Yeah, and I think I saw some data, some number somewhere that says, you know, 50% of people who die by suicide don't have a mental health history. You know, yeah. they have no no experience with the mental health system. So we know yeah. that it's, you know, that that's out there. And they would also, 50% would score low on a suicide risk assessment scale. And so this idea that our suicide risk assessment scales pick up suicides, even in general, is, is, um, is misguided. And so um, in some ways, my job is disheartening and that I can't tell who's going to live and die. In other ways, it's so rewarding because the things that I can do are always helpful to people. If I can find a risk factor and reduce it, that always makes their life better. If I can find a protective factor that's missing or needs boosting and add to it, it always makes their life better. And so I get to do that thing that we love in medicine, which is to improve the quality of life. But then there's always, obviously in suicide, there's always the specter of, you know, what if you're wrong? What if you get it wrong? What if it doesn't work? Those types of things. Yeah. And I think it's really important when we talk about, you know, the risk assessments, again, we, I think us in the field, we, we know how kind of imperfect they are. We know that they're like, they're just the thing that we kind of do. And there, there is nothing that says like, well, this is a thing we, we did the risk assessment and everything is good. Or, you know, the, the other element, you know, or, you know, they, we saw the interview, we interviewed them, you know, week before and they said they weren't suicidal. So that, yeah. you know, again, that aspect of it, you know, we, we recently had at our center, we had a suicide and it was again, everything that kind of happens where you look over and assess and process it and everything from the outside was done the right way and you know you you try to say what could we have done different and sometimes you can't for my for my patient's protection i'll alter a couple of details but i remember seeing a, a young person who you know i was assessing for garden variety anxiety in a general outpatient clinic we got along very well i did all of the suicide risk assessment thing. I looked for bipolarity. I was talking about lifestyle and all those types of things. Found out about a romantic partner and we were chatting about that and they had all these plans. As soon as they left my my appointment, they got a phone call from their partner saying that they wanted to break up. And within 25 minutes, I was going to the hospital to attend to them as they had jumped off a bridge and broken uh, a bone. And I remember speaking to them. I said, what happened? I had just met with you. And already by that point, they were back to, oh, that was stupid. It was just a partner. You know, I shouldn't have done it. But that's how quickly that thing can change. It can go from everything is great. You're getting along and you're actually feeling very settled to, oh, my goodness, this is a crisis to the person already recovering from that crisis uh, in a 30 minute span. So I always I'm always very whenever I think about how quickly things can change, I think about that moment. And it's really hard, I think, when people from the outside kind of critique or say things about what we do, what we see. Again, like, you know, when, when people come up to me at dinner and they're like, oh, you're a psychiatrist and tell me about this and that. I'm just like, you don't want to know. <laughs> you don't want to know. <laughs> you, you don't want to know because the, we hear the worst 
yeah. parts of society, worst parts of life of humanity at times. I think we, we do have to lament this a little bit, and we don't openly talk about it enough, that in psychiatry we are given things that society has decided they don't want to deal with. So whenever there's a major issue, people can just invoke the word mental health without thinking that, what is mental health going to do with that? And in the same way, when someone says, you know, we need supports for child abuse or we need supports for human trafficking or whatever, you know, we actually have to deal with the realities of it. It's, it's, you know, child abuse is not a black and white issue often. It's often a very intergenerational painful issue where there are no right answers and you're struggling with it, but it seems so clear from the outside. But society has really decided for a lot of issues, whether it's the involuntary care of, of the mentally ill um, or the protection of children, to just basically put it into a silo and say, let the professionals handle it. And, and we're human professionals. Like we don't have these magic ball abilities to predict or to know things. And, and with all of the messiness of humanity, it is really hard to arrive to some decisions. So I, it is a, one of those things that I think psychiatry gets unfairly maligned by. Like I know very few psychiatrists who enjoy involuntary care, um, but they know they have to do it because someone has to do it. Yeah, I think we we all hate it. I think some of the worst memories of my training were when we were forced to be in situations where we're like, I don't want to see this kid going, you know, being transported in handcuffs in the back yeah. of a police car. But I understand this is what the system is right now. Like those, you know, I still yeah. remember those 10 years, something later, they're very, very vivid memories. Or, you know, you're offering medication to a patient who has a horrendous social situation and you are powerless. You know, you're, you're trying your best to make their life better by giving them a medication that can't possibly change the life circumstances that they're in. But you know that because of their life circumstances, they're going through an episode that a medication might help a little bit with. So you feel, you know, you, 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 you're advocating for everything you can, but you know, you don't have that ability. I give, I give the analogy all the time too, in a way is that like when we're back again, training in residency, when I was in the emergency rooms in the cities, like Baltimore and Richmond over here, like person comes in off the street and they're depressed and like you know they're homeless they don't have food like what is 25 milligrams of Zoloft going to do for that yeah nothing exactly. right it's, it doesn't mean anything yeah yeah going back a little bit i know you touched on it a bit and you talked about some of the controversial political things that came about um with the teen suicide i know one of the things i really drew me to kind of to you was like you really dove into the data you talked about how suicide rates were in teens the alignment with school and during the pandemic as a whole in a quick quick you know like hey yeah. just don't look at my tweet if you want to like summarize it a little bit There's and then we can kind of two some of the pushback that, hope, that came yeah two things that i hope um i can change in terms of general knowledge the first is something that every child and adolescent pediatrician child and adolescent psychiatrist er doc knows which is that school days are more stressful for kids. Um, we are busier on school days and we are less busy on non-school days. It is just a fact. It's been a fact in child psychiatry forever. But that actually translates into kids are almost 60% more likely to die on school days than non-school days. And this fact is so well evidenced. When I did a, a report for Scientific American, I did it on the basis of 9.7 billion patient years. Um, I mean, the, the statistical significance is, you know, to the 34th or 35th decimal, 
You know, this is unequivocal stuff that kids are more likely to die on school days and on school months. Um, it doesn't mean that school is bad for kids, but it means that we know that school is a period of time of increased distress. So if there's anything we can do to reduce distress in kids, we should be doing it. And it was that knowledge that has always been a little bit counter because everybody leans into this whole thing that school is good. And I'm always like, well, hold on, there's lots of things school could do to, to, to be better. Um, and then when the pandemic hit, um, very quickly, the media doctors, um, whoever they were, and there's some famous ones, they're on CNN and they're on NBC and, and, and they're just, they're accomplished physicians. They are, you know, you know, I have nothing against their qualifications, but they're not mental health experts, and they're certainly not child mental health experts. I mean, one of the greatest lamentations in all of psychiatry is the degree to which other physicians don't know what we do and don't know how to do even the basics of what we do. No idea at all. And so when when these media doctors started talking about this direct connection between their parents' unemployment and rising child suicide rates in early 2020, and how there'd be a shadow pandemic of suicides because of the pandemic, and how shutting schools down would kill kids. I was like, hold on, you mean kids get an extended summer break? That actually might save lives. Like there actually could be less suicides because there's less school. Um, and we've seen this during strikes and things like this, like during periods of strikes in, in cities, um, the suicide rate for those kids goes down temporarily. Um, so, um, so I was, I was kind of like very skeptical of this idea that there'd be a wave. And I started putting out there in op-eds that, you know, we really should let the data speak to us. We need data as quickly as possible, but it could be that this idea that, that kids dying by suicide due to the pandemic is not really going to be a thing. Um, and I was, one of a handful of people who were talking about it in that way. Pretty much everyone else talked about a tsunami of suicides and shadow pandemic and all this type of stuff. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't say I'm right, haha, everyone else was wrong, but I'm right because of a principle. I follow the data. Like everything I say about suicide is informed by the data on suicide. And you and I both know that a lot of things that people do about suicide and think about suicide are formed by the fear of suicide, the unknown of suicide, the helplessness feeling of suicide, and not the data of suicide. If you see a child who says they're suicidal, there is a 99.998% chance that child is not going to die of suicide. And, and, and yet we act like every child who says they're suicidal is going to die. That's 15% of kids versus 0.006% of kids who die by suicide. So, you know, the data always speaks to me and then I speak, you know, out. Um, and that's why I, I was very confident in my position that, you know, it really could be that there is not much of a change in suicide rates. And of course, it doesn't help when some of the loudest misinformation speakers, um, everyone from Donald Trump, who in April said that there'd be more suicides than there would be deaths due to COVID in April of 2020, which is as wrong as wrong could be, uh, to, you know, some of the famous um, COVID media celebrities, the um, these doctors who have um, founded these sort of COVID contrarian think tanks and written all these opinion pieces, none of whom are, are psychiatrists, um, claiming that that kids would die because of of school shutdowns, and they're they're just all wrong. It's been you know twenty six months, and there's been no increase in child suicide rates, and they're just wrong. 
Yeah, I think I remember in the beginning of it when it was that idea of like, well, we're just kind of getting summer, summer early, a long summer break. And that was kind of like, okay, we'll just, you know, make it through. Was it April, May, June, and we'll be all good. And then start back again in September. The kids were fine. The kids loved it. They were fantastic. And when we, when we were on the ground seeing the kids and the teens every day, yeah. They were okay with it. They were and there totally were there fine. were some high functioning kids who really lost out when school shut down. You know, the, you, you think about your high driven kids, the ones that are very social, and there was other kids for whom school was a little bit of a hard experience, and they flourished during the period of remote uh, learning. Um, you know, we now have these longitudinal studies. There's one out of the Netherlands. There's two lockdown periods, and they followed kids with mental health disorders, and they found an improvement in depression scores during the periods of lockdown. And these are these are high quality longitudinal studies. You know, we're not just doing one-off surveys. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. Some kids did well, some kids did worse, some kids did the same. But in the net, it really does look like kids typically followed the pre-pandemic trend. And you and I both know the pre-pandemic trend was not great. Um, no. So, so th that things are increasing is not is not the thing that I'm pushing against. It's there doesn't seem to be an extra effect of school shutdowns on the mental health parameters that we're seeing. No, and I think exactly to your point is like the kids who struggled when they were in school, the kids who were you know in our partial hospitalization program for school avoidance and school you know keeping us busy from September to June, keeping us full from September to June, those kids did great. And then the kids, again, you know, when they came back, when it was back, that's, you filled right back up again. Well, we, and we've seen this pattern of, you know, early 2000, like the school year of 2000, 2000, really 2021, that January to May period in the United States, there was quite an increase in suicidal presentations to ER in the United States. But I always like to point out, that's when most of the states started opening up that, you know, by that point, it was really just California and, and New York that were still mostly shut. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I don't always like to draw those relationships and say that it's causative. But if you were ask me, what would be the net result of adding starting up school after being off for a while, on top of a pandemic that is resurging? I would say kids will be under more distress. Uh, it would be my hypothesis. And I think more so because Virginia, Northern Virginia, where I, where I practice is, it's a mix of liberals and conservative people. And, you know, we're, we're right outside of D.C. Um, we have that mix of people, you know, we're, we lean much more liberal in a way. But there is that the, the questioning, right? I think the kids are smart enough. And that's the other thing is, right? Kids are smart. They pick up on the fact that nobody knows what the hell was going on. And the adults didn't know what the hell was going on. There was a lot of mixed messages and questions and like, should we go back? The teachers were saying, should we go back? Everyone is, there was no certainty. And then it was like, go back to school yeah. and deal with it. Yeah. And then it played out. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, kids don't do well with uncertainty. Um, we know that stresses are additive. And we know for sure that school is a major driver of stress for kids. And so it's a, it's almost like, um, you know, when I was, when I knew that it was kind of inevitable that schools would be opening up, I kept cautioning, just make attendance the goal. Just make, hey, let's hang out. Let's see each other again the goal. Let's reduce all these academic pressures. And, um, and, and you know, we kind of saw a little bit of the reverse. Um, some of that is due to political pressures for standardized tests and things like that. But there was a 
big pressure to get all the academics done that you missed. And, and it wasn't really a gentle experience for some kids. Right. I think that was more so the kind of the trouble that came about was that transition to be like, pretend like nothing happening, go back to normal. Yeah. And I was like, no, we can't. With this massive global trauma occurred to everybody, yeah. and we can't just pretend like it didn't happen. And there's this neglected aspect that it's going to be true in the United States, but we, we, we're starting to see this more and more. You know, there's estimates of millions of children who've lost parents and primary caregiving grandparents in the world, you know, and, and this is, um, you know, I've read so many studies on the mental health impacts of COVID and about 5% of them even mention, even ask the child or the family, did anyone you know suffer or die because of COVID? Just imagine how important a death in the family is to a child's mental health. Most kids start or maybe have one death in the family during their childhood years. Um, you, you know, some families had multiple. Um, COVID hit the United States very hard. It hit the world hard. We know there were millions of primary, secondary orphans created. Yep. Um, and especially minorities and people in the urban cities. And it's it's trouble is trouble yeah for sure kind of with this you know i think you touched upon that aspect of the the pushback that came the flack that you know we're still kind of getting you know you've become this expert um you got your blue check on twitter um does that not, mean anything now no who knows the, i was gonna say that the not paid for blue check before it was the og check the og blue check right and you're you're the expert and you're the guy go to go to for this and then you get the people who come after you and yeah. the pushback as a whole. And again, even, you know, we, we're anti, you know, the psychiatrists and then there's the anti-psychiatrists and the people, yeah. who, the Scientologists and all that, et cetera, that's out there. How do you personally deal with all of that? Or, how, you know, with kind of feeling like people aren't listening to you or hearing what you're saying yeah, or, or I, validating you? I'm, I'm really lucky to be a veteran of the internet. You know, I, I've been on the internet since before there was an internet, like I was on BBSs as a child, uh, bulletin board systems. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I was, I was, um, I was on the internet before there was a World Wide web. I've been doing Usenet, you know, debunking of misinformation. I think one of my first major debunks was MSG allergy. Um, you know, like I've, I've always been really into science communication and, and skeptical thinking. So I'm, I'm very used to the ways in which online people attack. And so it's made me very confident in blocking people when I, you know, Twitter actually gives you a number of tools to manage your life very well. Um, and I always see this argument, you know, don't block them. They'll never hear you. I, I have bad news for internet friends. There's a certain percentage of people who have no intention of ever hearing you. And um, the sooner you get them out, the better. Uh, there's a middle group that you can influence. Um, and my, my, my account is testimony to that. When I took, started to take my, my Twitter seriously and get misinformation out there, I had 4,000 followers. I didn't have a single publication in a national journal, um, uh, sorry, a national newspaper, a few, few journal publications. Um, wasn't being asked for op-eds, wasn't being asked to collaborate on projects, wasn't being approached by the WHO. And during the course of my Twitter career, it's because of my commitment to misinformation battling that there is a group of people that are like, hey, I'm interested in this. Can you tell us more? Scientific American reached out to me, asked if I would do a piece on schools and suicide because there is a group of people who don't know that. And if you aim, if, if you if you try not to aim your 
your online experience at getting angry at people who are wrong, but you try to show show people why the people who are wrong are wrong, you do get to influence a middle group. And so that's that's really been my general approach. Um, it's awful being a psychiatrist on Twitter because the anti-psychiatrists are brutal and vicious. Uh, they go after degrees and diplomas. They, they, um, they write to employers. Uh, they exaggerate and lie. And most of all, most of all um, they, they will very quickly um, turn any criticism of their position into not being patient supportive. And my one statement for any, if, if any anti-psychiatrist dare listen to two psychiatrists speak, if anyone who's on that sort of um, psychiatry is evil or psychiatry is fraud or whatever sort of accounts, um, <clears throat> I want you to know something really, really important. My job is to advocate for all of my patients. I definitely know patients who have been harmed by psychiatric practice, by psychiatric medications, by psychiatric treatments. I know patients who've been neglected. I know patients who've been harmed. And I will never deny that psychiatry has a very long way to go to improve. And we are in a very special and intimate position with our patients that we have to take very seriously. But I also know many patients for whom psychiatry has helped, that medications have helped and treatment have helped. And I get all the feedback. When I get feedback that something didn't work, I incorporate that into my worldview, and I work really hard to minimize that for future patients. In the same way, when I get feedback that something worked, I build that in and I offer that to all of my patients. The reason that I offer patients medications for treatments for which medications are indicated, the reason that I talk about psychotherapies, the reason that I try and learn things that are non-pharmacological is because of patient feedback. So this idea that psychiatrists don't listen to patients we all know that we all know that there are psychiatrists that are just <laughs> you wish they weren't in practice they're just you know but most psychiatrists got into this job because we listen to patients and we do really care about outcomes and so um to all the people who think that psychiatry is 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 um defensively defending medications or whatnot definitely not i am very i am very um agnostic to how a patient gets better if a patient can get better without medication, there'll be no one on this universe that'll fight harder for it than me. But when medications are necessary and helpful, I will offer them and they help patients. And I know this because my patients tell me, just like I know that patients can be harmed by medication by, patient, by patients telling me. So that's the most frustrating part of the anti-psychiatry experience on Twitter is this idea that anytime I speak positively about medication, I'm demeaning patients' experiences. And anytime I push against a misinformation piece about harms. So when someone says that 80% of people who take a psychiatrist uh, take an anti-psychiatric medication or a, 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 say an antidepressant medication are harmed, we know that's not true. We know it's not 80%. We're really sure about that. And if I push against that, all of a sudden I'm I'm diminishing the patient experience. That's the most frustrating experience because I do care so much about my patients and their experiences. Yeah, and I think you know when I I only somewhat recently I want to say kind of joined into the Twitter fray um, in the past year or so I was kind of a silenter before but then it really started to get into the past year but like if nothing else like I and I also want to kind of I think what you said was perfect right I have nothing more per se to add to that but I think you know I've learned a lot from these people right yeah. these people who initially who I came out that they were like I was like oh my god these people are attacking me I, I've learned from you all you know I've very much learned is stuff that you're right. That wasn't necessarily taught to us in training that we didn't necessarily experience that I've read up on more so and I've incorporated. I think we've all incorporated that into our practice to say, like, 
we have to make sure that we're informing consent, right? That we are talking about all these things and understand that these things can happen. So we're not dismissing you, right? It's I think we're we're seeing when we look at the numbers, and again, one person who's a vocal saying something negative, there's 20, 50, whoever, who knows however many people who are silently doing better with the same yeah. treatment that you just had. And we just have to, we have to figure out some way to share our clinical experience. You know, I'm, I'm, um, I'm in an academic center. I have to do very rigorous follow-ups of my patients. And I am very confident that the numbers cited about the rates of side effects on antidepressant medications are blown out of proportion because I see my patients all the time. And I know that there's a percentage of patients who experience side effects who can't continue medication. But I, I, would, I would not be exaggerating when I say that probably 90% of my patients, when I see them in follow-up, say I didn't feel any side effects. And then it's a question of whether or not the medication was helpful. And, and we know that for kids, medications are maybe a little bit less helpful than adults. So I, I would love to see the efficacy numbers be higher. But I don't see these terrific side effect rates in the kids that I'm treating. No, and I think kind of going back a bit, you were saying like with the medication, like I, I would love to be the child psychiatrist who never writes a prescription yeah. again. It makes my life easier, much less liability, all that stuff. But at the same time, like we know we want to teach these skills. We want to work on that stuff again. When I and I've invited some of these people jokingly to be like, come sit in a day clinic with me and see, you know, measure the time that I'm seeing patients measure the time that I'm talking about medicine itself and you'll see that that number is so small yeah. it is so small like we don't spend our sessions yeah. talking about medicine and we everything have, and we have to be sensitive to the knowledge that a lot of patients tell us that when they go in it's like how are you doing how are your meds goodbye and we don't like that type of psychiatry I think we hate we're them, here, hate them. We're, we're here to advocate for a completely different system of psychiatry and I think you know, it's one of the reasons that I'm you know in a thinking or working where I have been or I've been in those positions because I have that ability to spend 30 plus minutes with my people on a regular follow-up which you know if I was working in a big box place or insurance companies like just wouldn't even be possible or feasible yeah yeah, yeah I, I do I do hope that um, when people see my account when people see me um, d defending against disinformation they see um, a willingness to learn a willingness to engage um, you know I have very specific blocking criteria if you're disrespectful if I I click on everyone who replies to me's Twitter profile and if the first I look through the first 20 tweets and if I see like you know like psychiatrists or murderers or all medications are evil I just I just block them I know that there's going to be no fruitful conversation there but if you engage me with good faith and you ask me a question I'll answer it and really how how I go after that will depend on what was your response to my response. If I put in good faith to answer a question and then you go, yeah, you say it was because of a pharma company, you know, that's, that's the end of that conversation. And people will say, oh, you, you know, you block, you're a coward, but you know, I block because why would I engage in a fruitless conversation? Someone can read my response, see that I was reasonable and then I blocked it. No one, no one's harmed. I think it's, you know, us utilizing the skills that we hopefully teach our patients, right? Is that if somebody's not bringing joy and happiness to your life and <laughs> only negative negativity, yeah. why keep them in? Yeah. Let's pivot a bit to like that, that joy 
aspect of things, one of the things that was, he was like, oh, here's another psychiatrist, another child psychiatrist, and he loves suicide. Then all of a sudden, I see these pictures of, like, planets, <laughs> and I was like, what is happening, and why do I want to buy a oh. telescope right now? So you're doing oh. astrophotography. Yeah. Tell us about astrophotography. You know, it's, it's incredible. I love photography. Before the pandemic, one of my favorite things to do was travel and take photos of things. And I love sort of nature type photography. You know, if you put me in a forest in Japan, I'm the happiest person in the world. I'll just take pictures forever. And my wife is always upset because I'm lagging behind to take pictures. Of course, the pandemic hits and I can't go anywhere. And, you know, I, I decide to do these. I was like, okay. I've taken pictures of my neighborhood enough. I'm going to go on a bit of a trip. And so in the, in, in one evening, I went out to a beautiful lake. It was a very dark site. So there was stars were out and I just tried taking pictures of the stars and you know, it's, it's a, it's a new skill set. So if you ever do it, you'll get these blurry, messy stars that don't look anything like you want them to. But I saw this little fuzzy thing and I was like, what was that? And I asked someone online and they go, that's, that's the galaxy Andromeda. And I was like, are you kidding? I took a picture of the galaxy I drove. It was just this tiny little fuzz. I'm like, that's really cool. And uh, I read, like, how can you take a really good picture of Andromeda? So they, they say, oh, you do this thing called stacking. And you take all these short pictures and you stack them on top of each other. And I took my very first picture of, of Andromeda Galaxy with a, just a straight photo lens. And it's ugly. Like, when I look at it now, it looks nothing like the photos I take now. But it was a real galaxy, and I realized, oh my god, I have these eternal subjects just waiting for me in space that are beautiful. And then I do what I do, and I just got really into it. <laughs> and, and astrophotography is, a, is an amazing thing, because from the ground, you are taking pictures of these light years across structures that even if you were in them, you couldn't see. Like, that's how d dispersed they are, but from the distance, you can see them. And... Um, and then it's a it's just a trial and error process of pain like uh, you take a picture and it's blurry and you find out oh you need dew heaters you take a picture it's out of focus oh you need an autofocuser you take a picture and it's you know, it, it, oh your camera needs to be cooled because there's too much noise and you need the software and so it's it's an expensive hobby it's a punishing hobby because you have to stay up at night doing it um, but then technology has really changed the game because in the last six years or so um, there are these amazing cameras these amazing systems these amazing softwares so that at night I set up my camera, I tell it what I want it to take pictures of, and in the morning I have data to work with. And then it's data processing, which is my favorite thing in the world. Uh, but it's, you know, so, you know, I've gone from, you know, a fuzzy, tiny nothing of, of Andromeda to like a full scoped picture of Andromeda and all of its little spiral arms and all those types of things and, and, and the dust clouds and things like that. And whenever the picture comes out, it reminds me of my first photography experience as in high school when I had the black and white film photo and you put it in the developing ink and then you just the developing liquid and you just you see the picture emerge and it's the most exciting thing in the world and you get that same feeling in astrophotography which is really cool no it, it's I've always been a space junkie you know I remember those you know back in like kindergarten first grade and having to pick you know the library go to the library and pick your books it was always the space books and I was like what you, know, you see the pictures you know back in like you know this is 20 30 years ago 30 years ago i'll say <laughs> however many years ago um but like you know at that time what the books were and you're just like oh my god this is a whole whole new world that's there and the stuff now the new telescope i can't remember what the, what's it called that's putting out oh, all these the james webb yeah oh my goodness so you see yeah. these things and you're like this is out there and it, yeah. and it reminds us of like 
are, you know, you see, you see the people who are having these existential crises online or saying like, this is <laughs> our, our life. And like, we are, we don't mean anything. And, yeah. and the other people are like, you know, can this be like a, a, a way to like world peace yeah. that again, like comes out there. It's, if, it's you, if you ever be- want an existential moment, um, <laughs> put a Wikipedia to the ultra deep field Hubble picture. Uh, it's where Hubble decided to take a continuous photo of the darkest 13 trillionth of space that they could find. And within it, they found thousands of galaxies. It is the most humbling picture you'll ever see. <laughs> but it, it's just like the power I think we see of how how important these these images can mm-hmm. be and what we can get from them. And it's it's almost spiritual. It's truly at inspiring. Times. And, and you look at a galaxy like Andromeda and you realize that what you're seeing is Andromeda two billion years ago because it's two billion two two billion light years away. You know, so you're you're looking back in time. Um, yeah. it's an incredible feeling. Yeah. yeah. What does it do? I mean, is, is this your main coping skill? I think we, we talked about this, but then there's other, like, <laughs> we talked about video games and yeah. stuff too. So <laughs> I love video games. I, I don't game as much as I used to. I think, um, I'm very selective now in my games. I need my games to be a very high quality. I love good plot games like role-playing games and, and games with a really good plot, um, and character-based games. Um, but um, basketball would be another one. I love um, shooting. I got into the habit of shooting three-pointers, and, and I kind of do that regularly. And then um, watching. I'm an avid Lakers fan, which is painful right now, but has Ter- terrible right good. now. Historically, it's been a good good group to follow. <laughs> they, they, they got a good streak right now, So, but, but right now, not so much. But, no. <laughs> um, video games is interesting, right? Because yeah. we're child psychiatrists, child adolescent psychiatrists, mm-hmm. and video games are supposed to be the thing of childhood but they're we know they're not um and i'm sure we get patients that you know parents of patients that are like kids are on the video games all the time and they can't get off of it and what do we do and you know when i see those patients and i say the parents i'm like well it's it's a little bit more complex right it's not as simple as like video games are bad like talk let's talk about that a little bit the um the biggest mistake when a child has a problematic behavior is to point at that behavior and say the behavior is the problem. And one of the core tenets of psychiatry, psychology, and diagnostics is doing a formulation in which you try and understand the whole patient, the predisposing factors, the precipitating factors, the perpetuating factors, the protective factors. You know, we've memorized this grid in our head and we apply it to all of our patients all the time. And whenever a parent comes to me and they say, my child's playing too many video games. I find that if I ask myself two questions, I can really help. The first is, why are video games so rewarding for them? What is it about video games that really benefits them? And the second is, what is about the rest of their life that video games outranks those things? (laughs) Because I also love video games. I am, you know, I can get into a game and I can lose a night, but I work. I enjoy my friends, I play basketball, I do other things. And if whenever I ask those questions and I look at a kid, I usually find other things. I find anxiety in the family, or there was a death in the family, or there's bullying at school, or there's a learning disorder that was undiagnosed, or um, you know, uh, there's a, a really complex dynamic between a very permissive parent who can't struck, set boundaries you know, the purchaser of the video game is the one that's complaining about the video game. And um, uh, 
And then I realized there's other things to work on because why would I tell a child, hey, I'm here to help you. Let me take the thing you love away from you. You know, it's just when you, when you draw it out like that, it's the silliest thing to tell a child. They will resist you. They'll fight you. They won't be an active part of their component. But if you say to them, you know, I like games too, and I understand that they're fun. We just need to add other things or we need to make other things easier for you. What can we work on? You have an ally and a child. And so many parents, I see them in the emergency department, literally a suicidal kid because the parent turned off the Xbox. And everyone's like, the Xbox is the problem. I'm like, well, no, your decision making is a bit of the problem here because if life or death depended on an Xbox, keep the Xbox on, please. You know, like it's not a hard decision. And if you can upgrade your problem to fighting, you know, life or death stuff to fighting over the Xbox, you've you've improved your position. So if 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 parents can really look at video games as a refuge that kids go to when other things are hard and it's a compelling one it's exciting and fun and you can be successful i've met kids who are completely outcast in school who have a robust friend system online and then their parents wonder why they play video games well you go where your friends are where you go where your success is so if you can ask ask those questions um why is the child successful in video games and what's hard that makes other things outranked by video games Usually you find something and then you have something that the kid's probably also interested in. Most kids I know are not interested in working with me to reduce their video game play. It's a, there, I've had a few. Oh, yeah. I've had a few who like I play too much. I need help stopping. Yeah. And of course, anyone who's motivated, you can help them. But if you're going against a child's wishes, I have bad news for parents. The kid's going to win. If you tell a parent you can't date, the kid's going to date without telling you. Tell a parent you can't play video games, they're going to go to a friend's house and play video games. You know, like, we just don't have that level of control, especially over our adolescent children that parents believe we do. And I think it's, you're you're so important and so, like, on point when you say, like, this is where, the you know, a lot of these kids are playing games so that they can win, yeah. right? They, they're getting wins in their life from playing the video games. Like, they're yeah. playing a game of Madden and they're beating somebody. Like, that's a win for them. And yeah. oftentimes these kids are not getting those wins in other parts of their life, like they may be being bullied or maybe other stuff at home. Yeah. There may be failing and stuff like that, but they're succeeding at the games and that's, they're getting that motivation. And I think that other part also where, you know, we've shifted our social life online so much, right? You know, we grew up or we have that generation of, you know, we are the Facebook generation and <laughs> we still got that. And, but then we wonder why are our kids doing the same exact thing, that we did yeah but we don't like it because they're doing it it's yeah. different from the way it's that always we did the generational it. thing because like my my parents would always get on me for calling my friends and not visiting them and their parents you know um and, and then you know this generation of parents is now on their kids for you know being online with their friends and not calling them you know because these parents the parents of this generation of kids were on their phone all the time and so they get frustrated when they see kids texting instead of calling. It's just one of those great examples of how the generation gets to define its own norms. Like, for sure, my parents didn't approve of how much I played video games. But I am very typical of an adult male in my 40s for video game play now. And it didn't really matter what my now 70-year-old parents thought about those video games. The norm is that most adults play video games. Adults is the number one entertainment industry, um, I think, just behind books. I think books is the only thing. Or maybe television beats it. I, I, not books. I can't remember. Just television. Yeah. Definitely beats movies. 
even just like going back, I think a little bit, we have, I think it was Joe Lieberman who was railing about violence, Mortal Kombat, you know, Mortal Kombat is one of my, is my all time favorite video game franchise. And, you know, it's this place where you can go and rip people's hearts out and chop off heads and it's all good. Right. So I don't do that in the real life, but I can play that in video game life. Um, but this was making children satanic and making them like terrible. And this is what leading to violence and becoming school shooters. And we, again, we blame it on the, these video games. The research doesn't show that, right? Not at all. In fact, you know, one of the quickest debunks of video games causing violence is, is in the 2010s video game play went from 60% of kids to 98% of kids and violence in kids dropped by 60%. Um, uh, so, you, you know, correlation isn't causation, but if everyone started smoking and lung cancer rates fell, we'd have a problem in understanding the cause of cancer. Um, so, uh, you know, um, a lot of those early studies, I, I think I think there's been a generational shift. I see a lot less of this now, but a lot of the early science was relying on some of the worst methods. Um, so, you know, some psychologist in a lab would take psych- psychology students and give them hot sauce to put on a, a spoon to give to another person. And the people who played video games gave two milliliters more of the hot sauce than people who didn't play the games. Therefore, video games cause violence. And you're like, are we going to really translate hot sauce on a tablespoon to real world violence? And so it was always this um, reactionary thing. Um, when when it was Schwarzenegger versus the ESA in the early 2000s, um, a landmark Supreme Court case really looking at blaming, you know, saying that video games couldn't be sold to kids, um, almost all of the evidence entered by the APA, the American Psychiatric, uh, Psychological Association's top experts on video game violence was rejected by Antonin Scalia as being, you know, you know, right-wing, you know, extraordinary judge as being without foundation and just the worst quality evidence. So, um, you know, what we now know is that video games are varied there's pro-social aspects and there's anti-social aspects. There's good parts, there's bad parts. We know now that video games are being monetized in microtransactions and, and gambling formats, that there is risk to problematic play that video games encourage. And so we, we do need regulation on video games. We absolutely need government regulation on it. Um, but um, there's been nothing to the boogeyman. And it's just a classic example of moral panic. It'll look as silly to the generation of kids that are now now growing up as the satanic panic of D&D looks to us. Like, it, it just, when you hear about it in today, you, you think that couldn't have been real. But satanic panic was really real. Oh, um, yeah. And D&D was, like, literally causing kids to worship Satan. And yep. it's just the silliest thing to think about now. It's a board game about pretend stories. <laughs> no, and, and I th- it's so funny that you bring that up. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a Muslim, Pakistani Muslim, you know, raised in this country, and my, my dad sent me to Catholic school, and I remember watching the, you know, watching the documentaries about like how rock music is the, yeah. you know, the entryway to the devil and yeah. etc. And this was going to lead us to hell and killing people. And I was like, what is yeah. going on right now? Moral panics are incredible. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of scary stuff, yes, I know we'll kind of wrap up with this kind of topic, <laughs> um, but I know we, we were just talking. You were I, I listened to you on the House of Pods horror movie special thing. And there were some conversations about like psychiatry and psychiatrists and movies. And I think, you know, when we talk about Halloween, you know, Dr. Sam Loomis as like 
the one time that the psychiatrist was this hero in the in, in movies. <laughs> Every other time, right? All the psychiatrists are sleeping yeah. with their patients, right? Yep. Or they're yep. they're drugging them up. I think we have yeah. psychiatrist in Terminator Two was like you know calling yep. uh, Sarah Connor delusional and like what are you talking about? That like there's robots from the future coming back to kill you. And obviously, I, I we I think we'd both do the same thing. We'd be like you're delusional, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> which, <laughs> you is, know? which is by the way, I know, I know that we're we're probably going to talk about it, but that the, I think we've both seen the movie Smile. They did they did that so well. They did that reality testing of what this person was experiencing so well. Um, these other people in their life were like, "What are you talking?" Like they weren't like, "Oh, let's go research the occult." <laughs> this is clearly no. happening. They were like, "You need professional help." Yeah. So yeah. So with Smile, it was like I, I think was like one of the only other times where you know, we had like a positive-ish kind of. You know, the yeah. main character is a psychiatrist, even though they I don't think they explicitly ever said psychiatrist in the movie mm -hmm. there were like i think they like you know there's always still that confusion about like are yeah. we a psychiatrist are we a therapist are we a psychologist yeah. we're yeah. something or other you'll figure it out um but you know the main character is a psychiatrist and you know not to spoil it too much but i think it really touched on trauma and yeah. secondhand trauma i think which and is subjective you know, experience and, and you know the, oh, yeah. the biggest challenge we face as psychiatrists is i don't get to know what someone is really thinking or feeling i just don't have a way of knowing that i love to believe all my patients and accept what they say at pay, face value but they could be lying to me or they could be delusional or they could be not delusional and it's not until i do really specific maneuvers can i pull apart delusions but where there's intention you never know someone's subjective experience so really really um i think that movie did a great job of of that frustration of if something was subjectively experienced by you and no one else that would truly be horror yeah and the fact that um you know we live this life right especially as child psychiatrists right where the parents are involved with it it becomes that i you didn't say that i said this and yeah. this isn't what happened and this is what yeah. i saw and yeah. we're in the middle and we're like I don't know what happened because yeah. I wasn't there. And I think the truth is somewhere in the middle I, of all I this. Hope, I hope the new sort of generation of writing and screenwriting will get away from some of the psychiatric tropes. But it's such an easy thing at the end of a movie to make the killer crazy. Um, it's such a thing to turn it into multiple personality disorder to solve some unresolvable or some hook or to, to end a story with a suicide. Um, you, you know, the, the, these tropes are so boring and actually quite harmful. They, they continue. I think when I think about stigma and harm, I think the best example is how one flew over the cuckoo's nest still defines what most people think about ECT and inpatient treatment. And it is without question that there has been inhumane treatment of patients. Like I, I don't deny that, that, but that is how people currently see psychiatric hospitals. That's how they currently see ECT, you know, and man, you know, media has such a powerful way of influencing how we see things. And they almost always get psychiatry wrong in a very stigmatizing way that makes all of our patients feel like they're never represented on screen properly. And if they were to ever need help, the last place you want to go in the world is a psychiatric institution. I think, I think that movie came out, what, 50 years ago or something yeah. like that. And it's like it's a lot yeah. different and yeah. you know i think you know part of our training was performing ect right yeah. and i think we can both say that you know giving out act is a lot different than one from one flew <laughs> over the cuckoo's nest it is and and you know um to the point where 
if I had severe illness and it wasn't responding to medication, you know, people are always like, would you sign up for ECT? Absolutely, I'd sign up for ECT. Um, it is um, humanely delivered. It is extremely efficacious. And the way that we do it now is with the knowledge that without using all the protections, using the muscle relaxant, using the anesthetic support and all those things, patients could be really harmed. So of course we care so much about patient harm. Um, but I do, you know, horror movies, movies in general, whenever psychiatry is involved, it's generally a, a bad thing. And so it's, it's really rare that you get these good representations. I think the Sopranos psychotherapist was also a great example of just a, a good psychotherapist. Um, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and you were talking about the movie Stutz, where, where it was really quite impactful to you. Yeah, so Stutz was great because I think, you know, not, uh, you know, Jonah Hill, the actor Jonah Hill is, you know, he's been very open about the fact that he's had his struggles with depression, anxiety, he's had losses, his, his brother died at a young age, or, or I mean, sorry, no, died somewhat recently. So that was a huge impact on him. And he's had his own struggles with body image, weight, and, you know, that's part of the, the quote-unquote joke with Jonah Hill is yeah. like his his body image and how he's always appeared through his life, you know. And he started pretty young when he was in the game, and he talked about how you know that the documentary was about movies that he's making with his therapist, with his psychiatrist um, Philip Stutz, um, and some of the tools that he learned. And I thought it was just really such an interesting movie because of the fact that you know you you're making a movie about your psychiatrist and almost flipping you know flipping the camera flipping the answers flipping the trajectory a bit and i think it's really interesting that it gives this view right and we can really get into the psychodynamics a little bit psychoanalysis a little bit of like you know that your psychiatrist your therapist is supposed to be this perfect idealized human being and who has no other life and then once that got flipped around and Jonah Hill's asking some of these questions and you realize, oh my God, this is a human being as well who's got flaws and health issues and experiences and own losses as well. And that's all there. Yeah. And, and the objectivity of, you know, what, a, what we see our psychiatrists, especially in an analytic view, are supposed to be, which are these bank, blank slates that both non-judgmentally, but really importantly, um, non-reactive and don't put themselves in it. Or if they do put themselves in it, it's to specifically probe for a question. Like, how did I, how did that thing that I say make you feel? Or how did I, how did, how did well, your anger that you're reflecting on me, what was that about? And, and so when I think about this movie and I've seen the, I've only seen the trailer for it, I'm, I'm really curious to see how they pull it off because I, I would like myself, I'd be like ethically, ah, uh, I don't know. Like if, if a patient asked me, I'd like to, I'd like you to be in my documentary about you. I'd be like, well, how could I ever, how could I ever help you again? If yeah. I became that central in your subjective pursuits. You know? Yeah. Which has been some of the kind of, I think, psychoanalytic criticism up out there. We're like, well, yeah. now the whole relationship is ruined and now there's X, Y, and Z happening. But I was like, yeah from an outsider perspective, from somebody who's watching yeah. it for a piece of entertainment and also just well, in general. I, I don't know if it's allowed. Yeah. I, I don't know if it's allowed, but um, <laughs> so if you need to bleep this, please bleep this. But we know that also 
psychodynamic psychiatrists kind of have their head up their asses and a little bit of prickly about this stuff. They have, they have mean, a lot of stuff for, wrong. for good reason. Like they ha- <laughs> they're very rigid. They have they have their rules, um, but there is there is this kind of knowledge that it is a very very erudite sort of hoity-toity. One yeah. must not break the rules, and I, I do think that humanity is probably a little bit messier than that. Um, it's very easy to strictly define what you do but you're going to almost instantly exclude a bunch of patients who won't do that. And if you're going to practically help people, if you're genuine, it's probably better than being rigid about the psychiatric rules. Yeah, I think even just yesterday, there was something that popped up about somebody being like, well, I didn't spend all my years training and going to school just so I can like give out tools to people in therapy that they can easily Google. And I was like, oh my goodness, I think you're totally missing <laughs> the whole point of this is about. Oh whole point is to give tools i am a tool provider yeah i was like my job is to make you better and whatever that may be is like i want you know i want to graduate you from me from seeing me so i I do like i I think that psychiatrists um now i'm I'm very lucky to work in canada where we have a public health system so when a time with the psychiatrist is paid by the government but i do think the psychiatrists have a greater desire to spend more time with their patients in therapeutic senses and psychiatrists have a great advantage in that we're typically eclectically trained. We have exposure to CBT, we have exposure to dynamic, we have exposure to IPT. And it, it, it allows us to work so closely with our psychology colleagues who can become hyper-specialized. Like if I knew someone really needed CBT, I know for sure a psychologist would do better CBT than me. But I know that I can help a lot of people with the variety of skills that I have. And then I have these amazing colleagues. And we all know that when there's a really complex fraught case, a psychoanalytic psychiatrist is like your guru, <laughs> like they're really going to help you. But um, it, you know, at the same time, you'll see these guild wars where the psychoanalysts are saying like CBT is you know, blah, blah, blah. So it's, it can't work because it's brief. And the CBT therapists are saying, you know, psychoanalysis is too expensive. And I just wish that people could see it from the psychiatric point of view, which is really all of these people have these amazing skill sets. And it really does look like it, we can't really figure out who needs what till you try give good efforts. Yes, for sure. And I think that's something that like a lot of people who don't know, who don't go through the training understand is that again, we're not just the medicine people. Psychiatrists <laughs> are not at all just the medicine people. Like we spent way more time doing understanding all these kind of therapy techniques and, and understanding this stuff than just being like, well, here's a didactic on like the mechanism of action of Depico, like, and, and I'll say like, I, I, like this generation of psychiatrists, I have no concern that they're not going to be concerned about patient centric medicine. Like they're not going to be concerned about their patient's subjective experience or, you know, like if there's one thing that medical schools have really turned the corner on, it's centering the patient's experience. And, you know, if you ever want to pass medical school, just say, you know, it's in the best patient's interest that you'll, you know, like it's that dogmatic now. So a lot of these sort of, um, uh, sort of assumptions about psychiatrists, um, are, are wiped away by modern psychiatric training, just absolutely wiped away by it. Yeah. I'm, I'm very, very optimistic about how the future of psychiatry looks, but yeah. Any parting comments, Dr. Black, before we kind of respect no, your time? No, I, I appreciate I think you're a great follow on TikTok. I don't do a lot of TikToking, <laughs> but I love seeing your TikToks. There's some that I can, ret- I can retweet or, or blast out there and others that I'm like, nope, not doing that one. <laughs> but to, um, to watch the coolest thing, <laughs> and, and I hope people know this, like one of the reasons that I loved meeting with you and doing this 
is you are you are a genuine person on the internet like you really are you and i know that when your patients see you this is the person that they're talking to and if there's one thing that i encourage everyone in mental health field to do is is be yourself because your patients can tell when you're being saccharine and sweet and fake like everybody thinks of that oh i'm so honored by your experience thank you for being you sort of ther therapist view but it sounds so fake to patients whereas i know that when someone talks to you um, they get you they get this same version it's genuine and i think we need to t strip away the ideas of what professionalism looks like in a modern media environment like it would be really easy for someone to take a look at your TikTok and say, oh, this is unprofessional. You can't use these words or, the, or you can't, you know, do a skit about a situation like that. Right. But the reality is you're reaching so many people. I mean, look at the outreach that you have now. And it's it's for that reason. It's because it's genuinely you. You're not you're not sort of putting yourself through this filter. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, it's one of these things where people may see that I'm wearing you know, a shirt <laughs> and it's, you know, with some artwork on there says has anyone seen my sharam which in urdu hindi it means has anybody seen uh my shame uh, and <laughs> and it's you know by one of my favorite pakistani artists maria yeah. kamar oh, hate really copy cool. on instagram yeah. um but no it's it's the, again that aspect where kids see right through you right kids see through the bs patients will see through the bs i am this is my office and i just finished my work day so this is how i see my patients right and this is how they this is how they uh this is how i'm well, affected, what a great thing what a great thing to teach um you know genuineness doesn't mean you don't have anything to learn it means that when you're genuine when you're your real self and then you apply all the skills and knowledge that you have you can really connect to people they know they're getting the real you and you care so yeah. well thank you dr black i know you're you're like again your data the the research has been, you know, I've always appreciated it because it it puts it much more legitimately than sometimes when I say stuff to people uh, that I can say like, no, there, it's out there. And so it's it's really nice to have you out there. And I think I, I always appreciate yeah. all of your inputs and being able to spend some time and talk with you was well, a blessing on my end. Thanks so. for having me and thanks for being here. All right. Where can we uh, where can we find you on all all your socials and all that? Typically, stuff? Typically, just Twitter, Tyler yeah. Black thirty two. It's num number thirty two for Magic Johnson, the greatest <laughs> Laker of all time. Um, uh, but um, uh, you know, I, I, I I'm going to be putting out an article in the Canadian Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry that I hope people pay attention to, and really, it's looking at the variety of responses that children have had to the pandemic and school closures to really go against this narrative that it's all been doom and gloom. Um, you know, if we were objectively to look at the research, it would be really fair to say that there is no one statement that describes how the pandemic has affected children. And, and the quicker we embrace that and then we figure out what made differences, then we're doing good science. Yeah, absolutely. I think nothing else, there's nuance in the world and we have to accept that and we yeah. can't apply one thing to everybody. So yeah. Yeah. thank you again. Oh, Great. Thank you so much. All right. Okay.